The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and, lay, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Sam. I'm on staff here at Sacred Seed Church. I serve as a deacon here. Um, I'm filling in the pulpit for Pastor Justin today. Um, And and we're going to be in a text that is um, typically read on Palm Sunday, right? The week before Easter. Um, but today, I think we're going to find out that this, this passage isn't just for Palm Sunday. There's, there's something very important for you to know right here and right now in this passage today. So um, I want to pray. But, but before I do pray, I just want to give you a little disclaimer here that, that I'm, <clears throat> I, I've sat in this text for about the last two weeks now, and this has left me in a very vulnerable and very bruised place. This has been one of those texts that just really runs me through the ringer. And so I just want to let you know up front, because I, I, think, I think as we go in here, you'll see some of my heartache in this. Um, but I just want to let you know that. Um, and I hope that if you're kind of in that place today, this morning, that you'll be able to connect with me as well as we find this good news in our text. So I'm going to pray, because um, I need help. I feel, like I said, I feel vulnerable. I feel kind of a week in myself. So I'm going to pray for us. Would you pray for me as I do so? And we'll turn to um, Mark chapter 11. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we, we come before you this morning knowing that you are the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. You are the one who has laid the foundations of the earth. You have hung the stars in the sky. You have given life to what was once dead and breathless. And we see that and we give you praise and thanks. And this morning, Lord, we come to your word, to the source of life, to hear you speak to us. And we are hard of hearing. We don't understand often. We, we misinterpret what you say a lot of the times. And so, Lord, we cry out to you for, for the helper, the Holy Spirit, to help us to understand your word, to see you clearly, to see Jesus as the most beautiful thing in this life. 
So we need your help. Lord, I need your help this morning. Would you use me? Would you use me in my weakness and vulnerability this morning um, to proclaim a strong and powerful but humble and gracious Savior? Father God, we come to you in need this morning. Would you feed us through your word? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Like I said, this is a passage that's typically read Palm Sunday, but, but I think that there's something here for us today. And, and as we get going, I, there's two things about this text that I want you to understand, or, or maybe two things that, that this text really brings forward. And the first one is this, that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah who will come and save God's people, okay? So that's the first thing we're going to see. But the second thing, and, and that's a pretty exciting thing, the fact that Jesus is going to come, he's going to save his people, he's going to deliver um, them from slavery and, and, and bring them into a new life. But the second thing is less exciting, I think, and it's this, that Jesus doesn't meet the crowd's expectations, Jesus doesn't meet the crowd's expectations. He fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, but he does it in an unexpected way. And I think, if we're honest, that there are times where we think that Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. There are times where, where we have high hopes or we have dreams and, and, and we think it's riding on Jesus. He's going to give us this. He's going to give us this life. He's going to open this door, and it doesn't happen. Right? Life throws us a curveball that leaves us discombobulated and unsure about the way God feels about us. We think, you know, if, if God loves me, if he cares for me, well, he wouldn't let this happen, or it wouldn't have gone this way, or maybe this would have happened. And so it leaves us asking this question, why? Why, God? Why would you let this happen to me? And I think as we go through this text, what I want to show you, what I hope to show you, is that when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations, it is done out of love, and it's done to the end of your ultimate good. Okay? So if you want to grab your Bible, that's where we're going. We're in Mark chapter 11, um, verses 1 through 11. We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the gospel of Mark. And today we, we begin the last third of Mark's story, of his account of Jesus' life. And this is like, this is the point where things are really getting good. So up to this point, Mark has spent 10 chapters talking about all of Jesus' life. The last 30 years basically is summarized in 30, or excuse me, the last 30 years is summarized in 10 chapters. Now, Mark is going to spend the last five chapters on the last week of Jesus' life. Okay, so the, this is important time in Jesus' ministry. And, and what we're going to see today is that Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem is the city. Jesus knows that this is the city in which he is going to be killed. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be held uh, on trial. And he's going to get a, a bad verdict. Right? He's going to be unjustly killed and sentenced to death. But as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he doesn't just walk in. He, there's a little bit of fanfare involved. And, and we see this in the first six or so verses here where Jesus, he'll, he sends two disciples into the town ahead of them to find a colt, a donkey. And he says that, that you're going to find it tied up um, and you're going to bring it back to me. And if somebody stops you, if somebody tries to stop you, ask you what you're doing, just say that the Lord wants it and he's going to bring it back. Okay. So the, the disciples go and they find this. 
And they bring it back to Jesus. And verse 7 says, um, they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Now this whole chunk right here might seem a little strange. It might seem like Jesus is a bit of a donkey thief, right? Like why, why would Jesus steal a donkey? But what's happening here is, is, has some serious significance. What Jesus is doing here is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah who would enter into town riding on a donkey, right? This comes from Zechariah 9.9 where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, right? So what Jesus is doing here. It's significant because he's pointing to the fact that he is this king. He is this Messiah that's riding in on this donkey. And, and all of Jesus' ministry has really been devoted to, to showing us this, right? He's been talking about the kingdom. Actually, one of the first things, actually, the first thing that Mark uh, records coming out of Jesus' mouth is, is when Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. He's, he's saying the prophecies are being fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So, so Mark, uh, Mark's not just showing that Jesus is talking about this kingdom, that he's not just talking about being a new king, that Jesus is actually demonstrating what this new kingdom is going to look like. He does this by restoring sight to the blind, by restoring the outcasts and the marginalized back into society. He's, he's even raised the dead back to life. Jesus is giving us a glimpse into this kingdom. He's talking about it, and the people who have been listening and seeing this like what they're seeing, and they like what they're hearing. And so they're following Jesus. And there's, at this point, there's a big crowd that's, that's following along, right? There's a mob of people. And what these people are thinking here, as Jesus is demonstrating the kingdom, he's talking about the kingdom, what these people are thinking is that Jesus has come to set up a new political kingdom. For over half a century, the Jews have been under Roman rule, about 63 years or so now. They've been under Roman rule. They've been treated unfairly. They've been politically oppressed, right? They, it didn't make sense to them why, why the Jews, why the Israelites were were in this position because the way they remember it, God had made a promise to Abraham that Abraham was going to make a, going to be a great nation and God was going to bless them and God was going to be for them. And now here they are in the midst of oppression, injustice, under Roman rule, and they're wondering what is going on here. But here's what they had to hold on to. They had scripture that told them that one day God would in fact send a king to save them. A king who would conquer their enemies and deliver them from their troubles. A kingdom of righteousness, of joy, and of peace. And a kingdom that would not be threatened by any, anyone that would oppose it. And this would be a massive kingdom, huge from sea to sea, filling the whole earth. And Jerusalem would be right at the center of it. Right? That's the promise that these Jewish people were holding on to. And, and as they're kind of sifting through these promises that they've heard, because they've grown up hearing of these promises, and they've, they've kind of been sifting through these promises and hearing what Jesus is saying, and they're starting to see a little bit of how this kind of all makes sense. They're putting the puzzle, the pieces of the puzzle together. 
And what they're doing here, they're kind of getting their hopes up. They think something epic is about to happen. They see Jesus kind of fulfilling all of these kingdom prophecies, the king prophecies, and they see him heading into Jerusalem, and they say, the new king is coming to town. Israel will finally rise up in power, right? And so what they do when, they, when they're thinking about this, they give Jesus the red carpet treatment. They think if this is in fact a king, then we need to treat him like a king. So what they do is they pave the way for Jesus with their cloaks and with palm branches. Now this, this act right here has roots in the Old Testament as well. Um, when Jehu was anointed king over Israel, the people blew trumpets, they proclaimed him king, they took off their outer garments and they put them on the ground for him to walk on. Right? So what they're doing here to Jesus is exactly how they treated their king. So they're treating Jesus like a king. And as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, a lot of people followed him, making a lot of noise. Verse 9 says that they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna is one of those, we sang that word today. That's one of those words, honestly, until this week, I really didn't know what it meant. And, and I bet some of us don't know what Hosanna means. But what it means is it means save, I pray. Hosanna means save, I pray. It's this request for deliverance. It's a cry for salvation. And these people are, are crying out at the top of their lungs, save us. And they do so in the, in the words of King David in Psalm 118, when, it's, when David writes down, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they're echoing the king's words to who they hope to be their new king. And if you just imagine for a moment this scene, like just picture it. You see Jesus riding on, on a donkey. People throwing their cloaks down, throwing branches down. People are screaming and shouting. They're singing, Hosanna. And, and as as people are shouting, more people come to check out what all the ruckus is all about, and they start joining in when they hear that, that this is a new king that's coming to town. And it's just this just intensity is growing here. They, people can kind of sense they're on the brink of political reform. They, they can sense something epic, something huge is going to happen. Now, this passage in your Bible is titled, the triumphal entry. And, and this is, in fact, a triumphal entry. But I think that this passage would be more appropriately titled, The Disappointing Exit. Because if you read verse 11, let's just do so here. He says, and as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Okay, so Jesus has made his way. He's, and we're talking miles here. He's gone miles on this path, on this donkey, on the way into Jerusalem. He's making his way to Jerusalem. And he goes... Oh, that's my spot here. And he enters Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And we looked around at everything as it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus makes this long trek in, walks in the temple, takes a look around. Mm-hmm. Well, it's time for me to go. Right? Looks down at his watch. It's time for bed. So all of this hype amounts to nothing. The crowd is thinking, 
this isn't right. Like, this isn't what's supposed to happen. This is where Jesus is supposed to be coronated. This is where Jesus gets crowned as king. This is the part where he gets outfitted in royal robes. This is the part where Israel will finally rise to power. But none of this happens. After all of this hubbub, Jesus heads off to bed. After all the hype, after all the intensity, nothing happens. And Jesus, and just like Jesus, the crowd retires to bed and their hopes and their expectations retire with them. Can't you just feel the disappointment here? Like, how disheartening to be thinking we're on our way to glory, on the way to this new kingdom, on the way to having a new power. Can't you just feel the letdown as hopes are dashed and expectations go unmet? These people were so sure something epic was going to happen. They were certain that their lives were about to take a turn for the better. Now, most of us don't have to imagine what this feels like, right? We have hopes, we have expectations, and there are times where they go unmet. In our career, we launch a business, thing doesn't get off the ground, we have to close it. Or, or maybe you're hoping for that promotion, you're expecting that promotion, and it doesn't happen. Sometimes it's our family, we feel letdowns in our family where our kids are out of control, right? Maybe we've been waiting so long for that husband or that wife to come along and it just hasn't happened yet. Maybe, maybe we've miscarried or maybe, maybe we're struggling with infertility or relationships, right? When we say I do's on your wedding day, you think, oh, I'm going to be with this person till I die. And here you find yourself in the midst of a broken marriage on the verge of divorce. Maybe you're, you're wrestling through a, a dear friendship that's been severed. Like we, we experience these letdowns, these unmet expectations. And in the midst of the tears, in the midst of the hurting, in the midst of the grief and the sorrow, there's part of us that's asking this question or really saying, I I didn't expect this to happen to me. Like, I saw this happening differently. This was supposed to happen the way that I wanted it. Now, like I said, this passage has been, been one that's kind of cranked on me quite a bit these last couple weeks, and it's, it's been a lot like salt in an open wound, because right now I sit in the midst of unmet expectations. <clears throat> About a month ago, I went to Chicago. My wife and I, we went to Chicago um, to get assessed to be part of the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. Um, this was something that we'd We've been excited for, looking forward to, um, and, and this was kind of the last leg of the application process. This was, this was a, actually, the whole thing was a pretty intense process. Um, 
the first, the first part of it was an application, like a written application, um, really in-depth, detailed about my life, my, my spiritual life, my ministry, family life, my theology, my character, all of this stuff. It took me about 15 hours to complete just the application, to go through and think critically about my life. And then, and then once I had completed that and that had been approved, I went on to be uh, interviewed, had a two-hour interview through Skype session with some guy in the UK, and where he kind of went through, ran me through some questions, make sure that I wasn't full of it. And then once I got past that, he approved me to go on to the, ne- the next phase, which was here in Chicago, which, and that was to, to be assessed by five other um, pastors from the network to sit down with my wife and go through eight hours of interviews, eight hours of sitting down over two days of just sitting down and talking about ourselves. They asked a lot of hard questions. They started scratching in places that I didn't think I had an itch. Like it was just a lot of, it was intense. It was a very challenging process. And at the end of it, what they were going to do is they're going to give me an objective assessment as to if they thought I was cut out for church planning or not. So it's, it's one of those things where you, you kind of open up your heart, you open up your life, and then at the end of it, they're going to say yes or no. Like, you're either for it or against it sort of a thing. So it was intense. But I had essentially been preparing for this over the last four years because um, I'd moved to Sacred City Church, uh, to Davenport, and I've been part of Sacred City Church since the beginning. And I kind of just entered in, and, and when I entered in it, into missional community, being part of the church, I started being discipled and trained and eventually, I got asked to come uh, serve in a leadership role and be a, a missional community co-leader. With At that time, there was like seven of us, so it was like half the MC was co-leaders. So it was pretty uh, not, not super heavy on my plate. Uh, but, but I kept moving forward in that. And at this point, I had thought that God was calling me into ministry. I, in college, I had this hunch that maybe God was calling me into ministry, but I didn't really know what it looked like. And so I, I moved here, and then some of that stuff started coming back up and thinking like, oh, Maybe I am supposed to be in ministry. And so this was kind of the next step. And so after some time passed, doing missional community leadership for a while, um, Justin had approached me and, and asked if I would be interested in doing a pastoral residency. And so a year, basically, I'd raise my, my own support. Um, I'd have an opportunity to, um, to get some, some experience in the ministry, to, to develop some skills, um, and to just kind of get an idea as to if I should or shouldn't be a pastor. And, um, or even be in the ministry. And so uh, we went through that process, and it was, it was a good year. Um, we came out of it thinking, okay, yeah, like, I think I have been wired. I think, think God's called me to this. Um, and so the next step was to, to do another year. But this time, we're going to change our focus to, to testing my call to ministry to say, well, do you think, is, the question was, am I supposed to be a church planner? And I thought maybe, like, I, was, I wasn't sure. I was like, yeah, I kind of like the idea, but let's, let's do this. We'll t- test it out. And so I did it. I went through that year, and I got more responsibility. I got more things on my plate, trying to start things and maintain things. And, and so I made it through that year relatively unscathed. Um, I learned a lot in that time and grew a lot. And, and so uh, we came out of thinking, like, yeah, I think, I think that I could potentially step into this thing of church planning, and about this time, the elders started talking about planning a church in Illinois. 
okay? And they thought that perhaps I might be the guy for this because I've been trained here in Sacred City over the course of the last two years. They thought maybe, maybe I could step in and take care of this and, and lead that part of our church. And so I, I was for it. I thought this was a great opportunity. I, I have dreams of one day planting a church in Des Moines down the road, and I thought, well, this would be a great stepping stone. This would be a great opportunity to learn some experience. It's basically like a church plant with training wheels, I, I thought. So, so I stepped into it. I thought, okay, great, this is going to work. So I, I started um, in January. I became full-time at the church began serving as the deacon of family worship, a deacon of church planning, taking on more responsibilities. <clears throat> and, in, and shortly after that, I started the elder development process to begin preparing to plant this church. And so we were thinking ahead. Like, Beck and I, we bought a home in Rock Island at, at the beginning of the summer, thinking, like, we're going to go over to Illinois, and that's where we're going to be part. We're going we're gonna to lead this church once it gets planted, and so we thought there are good things ahead. <clears throat> we thought we'll make the move. Things will just kind of fall into place. And we were looking forward to it, right? I was going to get a raise uh, with more responsibility. We were going to be in a new neighborhood. I was going to get uh, appointed as an elder and commissioned as a, as a, as a church planner. I was, I was really excited about this. This has kind of been what I've wanted for a long time here, building up to this. But the last piece of the puzzle that I needed before we really start moving forward with this church was to get, uh, to have a successful assessment with Acts 29. And so I was thinking my trajectory was pretty good. I had been um, for four years just developed, discipled, trained, and I thought, I thought things were moving forward. I just need this last piece of the puzzle. And so basically going into the assessment, there were four outcomes that could happen. The first thing, the number one was yes. I get assessed. They say, yep, welcome aboard, just like that. The second thing um, would be where they say yes, but we've got some, some things we want you to work on in the process of becoming a member. And the third thing that could have happened was where they say, well, we see potential. We see church planning potential in you, but we don't think this season is the right season because there's a few things we want to see you work on. And the fourth one would have been a, just a no, where they say, you know what, we, we don't think this is a good season of life for you to be thinking about planning a church. There's a lot of development that needs to happen. There's a lot of things that we're concerned about that if you were to go to plan a church now. So we're just going to say no right now. So those were the four things, the four results that could come out of this assessment. And so going into this assessment, over the last four years, I had become aware of my weaknesses like, this will happen in missional community. Your weaknesses will be exposed. You'll see places where you need to grow. And then being, part, being a resident, being on staff, a lot of this stuff, like, I knew where I needed to grow already. And so I was already receiving training. I was being discipled through those things. And so I thought, you know, I could go into this. And I thought, I thought like, I'm going to get a yes with conditions, like, a few things to work on, um, but they're going to say yes. Like, that's what my hope was. That seemed realistic to me. And so after this assessment happened, well, the assessment went great, actually. We, my wife and I, we had a great time in Chicago. We felt loved. We felt cared for. Um, we felt affirmed by our assessors. We just, we just felt a lot of positive things coming out of that assessment. And so that, that, for me, that kind of stirred my hope even more to get this, this yes, right? 
I was, you know, the assessment went well or the interview part went well. So I'm like, dude, this is, I'm in. And so I had to wait for two weeks after going through this assessment, two weeks to hear back from them, and I finally heard back. And I got the phone call. It was in the middle of the day. I was about to, I don't even know what I was about to do. I was about to do something fun that afternoon. Like I was looking forward to it. And uh, I get a phone call, and it's my assessor, and I, I pick it up, and, and I, I hear what I don't want to hear. It's like, Sam, we, man, we love you a lot. We care for you guys. We've really... We're really for you guys, but we don't think that you're ready for church, uh, Acts 29 membership. We think, we think you have potential for church planning, but there's some things that we see in your life that we want to see growth in before we say you're an Acts 29 church planner. And he's like, He's like, so we see potential. And he said, but, but here's what we're thinking. We're thinking you're, you're more like a year out from planting. We want to see a year's worth of growth happen in your life before we say yes. And, and they said, the thing, and here's what we think needs to happen in order for that year's worth of growth. We think you need to step out of the elder development process for a year. I was like, man, this seems like a setback. This seems like a step in the wrong direction. So far, over the last four years, if, if my goal is church planting, I have been taking a step in the right direction, right? MC co-leader, pastoral resident, church planting intern, on staff, deacon. I'm in the elder development process. So I'm, I'm thinking everything's going up and to the right here. Like, that's, that was my trajectory. Things were looking good for me. And then I get this call. And now I need to step back. Like, I need to take a step in the wrong direction, what it seems. And this was hard. This was hard to hear. This was not, this was not a fun conversation. Because not only did I get the phone call after that, they sent me, like, a typed-up report at the end of it. So I got to look through and see what they, like exactly what they were saying about me and the growth and the strengths. And then to actually see, you know, we see potential, but not now. We think you need to grow and we think you need to grow by stepping out. So to see it right there in black and white, it was hard. It, it was hard to hear the conversation. It was hard to read that thing. And it felt like someone had drop kicked me, extracted my heart, and then judo chopped it into a million pieces. It was, it was maybe one of the most painful things that I had ever experienced. I was, I was busted up. I was angry. I was disappointed. I was sad. I was frustrated. Man, I was all the emotions. And, and honestly, I didn't know what to do with them. Like, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys that has a lot of emotions and wears it on my sleeve. Like, it's like I had all these things going on inside of me, but I didn't know how to dispose of them. So I've got this thing boiling up underneath. And at the root of it, I felt let down. My expectations went unmet. I expected to take the next step and to go and then have next step after that. And then here, the next step wasn't going to happen just yet. My hopes were dashed. My expectations were unmet. And at, at the root of it, like to be 100% candid, 
I thought Jesus was to blame, right? I thought it was Jesus who let me down. He was the one who didn't meet my expectations. And what happened was I had fallen to the false thought that Jesus was going, like if I came to Jesus, he was going to give me what I wanted. He was going give to give me what I wanted, when I wanted it, and the way that I wanted it to happen. And I think, like, it, it pains me to say that because it, it just makes me sound like an idiot. But I think we all, all do that. Like, we all kind of have this mentality that if we come to Jesus, things will fall into place just like that. Like, Jesus is the last piece of the puzzle, and then everything will just kind of fall in after that. Come to Jesus. Find the girl, find the boy. Come to Jesus, he'll make us healthy and wealthy. If I come to Jesus, my kids will start acting better. Come to Jesus, my relationships will get easier. Right? Come to Jesus and fill in the blank. Right? We have that sort of mentality. And this is exactly what the crowd is doing too. They're thinking, come to Jesus and get a new political kingdom. They're expecting political reform. They're expecting a better life. They're expecting more power. They're expecting freedom. They're expecting more security from this new king. It's, it's clear that this crowd has expectations for Jesus. Now I want to clarify something here because it, this could easily get misunderstood. It isn't wrong for us to have expectations. It's not wrong for us to have expectations. I don't want you to walk away thinking that we shouldn't expect anything from Jesus or even thinking that having a desire for a better future is wrong. That's not, that's not the case at all. In fact, that's, that's unbiblical. It's good for us to have expectations. It's human for us to have expectations. God designed us to have expectations. I've been reading this book called The Voice of the Heart, and in it, the author argues that expectations are a good thing because it's an, expect, an expression of hope. It's this desire for a, better to, for a better tomorrow, that conflict will be resolved, that, that sorrows will turn to joy, that pain will be comforted. But here's the thing, biblical expectation like genuine expectation is a two-sided thing. It's a hope. It's a hope for yes. It's a hope for that better tomorrow. It's a hope for that what we really want. But on the other side of it, it's a willingness to hear no. See, true expectation is two-sided. Like you want something, but at the same time, you're willing to hear it come out the other way. Now, if we don't have a hope for a yes and a willingness to hear no, then our expectations are no longer expectations. They've become demands. We start demanding things to happen our way. We say, give me this or else, right? And the reason we say this is because we think we know what's best for us. We think we know what our ultimate good looks like. I thought my ultimate good looked like getting a yes through my assessment. But it didn't happen that way. What is, what, 
What do you think your ultimate good is? What is it that you're longing for? What is it you're chasing after? What is it you're hoping for? I know this is hard to hear, but this is the truth, that life doesn't happen our way. It doesn't happen the way that we want it to happen. And since this is unavoidable, the question is this. How do you respond when your expectations go unmet? How do you respond when things don't go your way? How do you respond when you feel let down by Jesus? I'll tell you how I responded. Not good. I was, it's like I went into a tailspin. I felt like I felt like I was throwing a temper tantrum on the inside. I was angry at God. I wanted to blame him for messing things up. I thought he was trying to ruin me by not giving me what I wanted. I thought he was being mean and cruel. And I think, I think that I'm not alone in that. Like the times when we don't get what we want, what we're hoping for, our expectations going, man, I think it's really easy for us to look at God and say, you're a jerk. And when we think that way about God, when we think he's mean and cruel, when, when we think he's out to get us and to snub us, we have a very unbiblical view of God. If there's anything that we can know for certain that is the character of God, story after story all throughout the Bible reveals a God who cares deeply and is loving and has an earnest concern for his people. Story after story. Psalm 145 gives us a snapshot of this and says, the Lord is gracious and is merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. If this is the character of God, if this is the essence of God, that he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that he's good to all, if this is the essence of who God is, that means that everything that God does is inspired by his love and concern for us. Everything. That means sometimes the most loving thing that God can do is say no to us. Sometimes the most, un- most loving thing God can do is leave our expectations unmet. You could say no to health, no to money, no to the spouse that you've been hoping for, no to success. And that, if he says that, that is for your good. Why? Because Jesus is rich in mercy. He's steadfast in his love. He's faithful, and he's good to all. And this is a a truth. It's a good truth. It's good to hear this, but it's one of those truths that's hard to wrap our minds around because there's part of us that doesn't like it because we're hearing no. We don't like to hear no. My son, he's about 18 months old, and he would like nothing more in this world than to eat cheese for every meal of the day. String cheese, cube cheese, cheese slices, shredded cheese, cheese sticks, you name it, any kind of cheese. I'm sure if you gave him a block of cheese, he'd like to eat it. He loves cheese. 
And, so, and for me as his parent, the most loving thing that I can do for him is to limit his cheese intake, right? If I don't do that, there are bad things ahead for both of us. Now, by saying no, by, by limiting that, I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm not trying to rob him of his pleasure. What I'm doing, I'm expressing to him that I'm for his good. It is not good for you to three, eat three pounds of cheese a day. So I say no. I tell him no. Because I am for his good. It may not feel like it in that moment, but I'm for his good. Now, this is what I want you to hear. That Jesus, Jesus, the, the one that we've been singing to, the one who we say is up on a throne, reigning and ruling over all things, the one who's in control of the world, Jesus is for your good. Jesus is for your ultimate good. Try to wrap your heads around this, that Jesus is more for your ultimate good than you are. I thought it was for my good to, to pass this assessment, to make it through, to take the next step. But Jesus says, no. Why? Man, this is hard for me. I'm still wrestling with this. But I know that it's for my good. What's best for me right now, Jesus is telling me this, what's best for me right now is to take a rest, to take a step back. Take some time to grow so I don't keep pressing forward and in 10 years tank my marriage, tank my family, tank my ministry, and tank my life. Jesus is saying no to me for my good, and Jesus very well might be saying no to you, and I know if he is, He's doing it for your good. And I know this because, because in our passage, Jesus doesn't meet the crowd's expectations, not only for their good, but for the good of humanity. It was for the good of all that Jesus wasn't crowned king upon his arrival into Jerusalem. It was for the good of all that the kingdom that Jesus was talking about wasn't a political kingdom. It was good for all that Jesus didn't meet these people's expectations. And here's why. If Jesus were crowned king right then and there, if his kingdom was inaugurated by the triumphal entry, then the crowd's chant of Hosanna, save us, we pray, would ultimately go unanswered. Certainly they would be saved from Rome's rule, but they would still be left under the oppression of sin and death. Because if Jesus, Jesus were crowned right then and there, there would be no cross. And with no cross, there's no forgiveness of sins. And with no forgiveness of sins, we are unable to reach our ultimate good, which is to be near to God. That's our ultimate good. To be near to God is our ultimate good. Because Jesus is for our ultimate good, 
He didn't give the people what they wanted. He gave us all what we needed. And what we need is a spiritual king. A king who can free our hearts from the tyranny of sin and the oppression of death. We need a king who is for our ultimate good. A king that can restore us back to God. A king who can keep us near to God. We need a king whose ways are higher, whose ways are better than ours. And Jesus, Jesus is that king. You see, rather than being coronated on Palm Sunday, Jesus was coronated on Good Friday as he hung on a cross. Instead of Hosanna, instead of the Hosanna in the highest, Jesus heard crucify him. Instead of a gold crown on his head, Jesus wore the crown of thorns. Instead of being clothed in purple robes, Jesus was stripped of his robes. Instead of rising to power, Jesus was killed in weakness. Instead of being blessed, Jesus was cursed. Why? For our ultimate good, to bring us back to the Father. Jesus was so serious about your ultimate good that he was willing to die on your behalf. That's how you know Jesus is more serious about your ultimate good than you are. Are you willing to die for your ultimate good? Jesus was. Until we understand that Jesus' work on the cross met our biggest need and leads to our greatest good, we won't understand that all of the smaller, unmet expectations we encounter in life are also for our good. Here's the thing. Sometimes expectations go unmet to strip us of our idolatry, right? To, to refocus our worship on God. Sometimes expectations go unmet to protect us, to keep us safe. Sometimes expectations go unmet just so we have the opportunity to have a season where we draw nearer to God. But no matter what, no matter what it is, it's always done out of love and for your good. Always. It's always done out of love and for your good. And in the midst of it, that's a hard thing to wrestle with. Like, I'm, I'm still wrestling with that. Like, I don't stand up here and I don't have, like, I can't say that this is in my past, that I, I've moved on, that things have settled. Like, this is a hard truth to really come to grips with. But when we see the character of Jesus, when we see that he's rich in mercy, that he's abounding in steadfast love, that he's faithful, that he's for the good of all, we understand this. And as we believe the gospel, there's a freedom to expect God to do incredible things because he tells us, he tells us he's going to do incredible things. In our lives, in the lives of others, in this world, God is going to do incredible things. But at the same time, we as Christians know that when our expectations go unmet, it's a gesture of love and the desire for our greatest good to be reached. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some of us sit in the midst of unmet expectations of, of the sorrow and the grief and the frustration and the anger that can come from that. We're not going to hide it. We're going to be truthful about where we're at. We know that you're a God who's come and met us, even in the brokenness. You come and, and you meet us where we're at, and you, in your father, father-like voice, and in the comfort of the Father's arms, you tell us that this is, it's hard, but this is for your good. This is because of my love for you. And so, Father, I pray, <clears throat> I pray that in those moments where we have a hard time believing that, that you would give us the faith to believe, that you'd allow us to trust you, that we could be honest about the unmet expectations and how we're dealing with those. But ultimately, would you lead us to understand and be aware of the proof that you are for, your, for our ultimate good. That as we come to the table and we see the blood of Jesus shed for our sins and the body of Christ broken to make us whole, that we would know this is proof, this is a sign that you are for our ultimate good. And so I ask for comfort from the Spirit this morning for those of us who are aching pray that you would draw us near to you. I pray that you would do this for our good and for your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.